is from uh, Luke chapter 2. Um, if you need a Bible, there's a couple spare up in that, that corner, so please make use of them. So it's Luke chapter 2, reading from verse 1 through to verse 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there were no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Uh, evening, everyone. Um, it's really nice to be here with you this evening. And uh, as I look around uh, this room tonight, I'm conscious that there's a lot of faces that I haven't seen before here. We've got a lot of guests and visitors with us tonight. Uh, and so let me say a special welcome to you. If you're new here, if tonight's your first night at WBC, we're stoked to have you here. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. I've got one of these little name tags, so hopefully I'm easy enough to find. I hope you picked up one of those little name tags out in the front desk as well when you came in, because that will allow us to get to know you a little bit as well. Uh, the, the goal of these name tags is really that we start to become a little bit familiar with each other. We put faces to names. We feel like we're getting to know one another. We become familiar, right? Uh, familiarity is a funny kind of a thing. Being familiar with someone, on the one hand, is a great thing. It's a really beautiful thing. When you are familiar, when you know somebody intimately, that's, that's a really beautiful thing. When you know someone intimately, you can really be yourself around them, right? You can just kind of let it all hang out. You show off warts and all, and there's no fear of recrimination. You know what you're going to get. That person is going to accept you no matter what. When you are familiar 
with someone. I've been working at WBC for about 12 months now. I started the exact same day as Joel, the other pastor, started here as well. And I feel like over this last 12 months, Joel and I have gotten to know each other pretty well. We're pretty familiar with one another. And it's so beautiful just over these last 12 months watching Joel be comfortable to share things with me because he's familiar with me. Like just the other day, he was telling me about all the different types of hipster hairstyles that he wants to try out. And I was like, man, that's great. I love that you trust me enough to to share that with me. Uh, But all, all joking aside, being familiar with somebody is a great thing, isn't it? I think good friendships depend upon familiarity. Good marriages depend upon that level of familiarity. And yet at the same time, uh, being familiar with someone is kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Uh, Because often the better you know someone, the more complacent you become around them. Uh, It was Mark Twain who said that familiarity breeds contempt and children. And I think he was definitely right, at least about the first part of that saying. Because when you know someone deeply, when you, when you spend lots of time with them, you can easily slip into this way of thinking about that person where kind of nothing really impresses you about them anymore. You know, nothing wows you about that person. You know, what you first thought was beautiful and, and praiseworthy. I'm not pointing at Joel when I say that, but beautiful and praiseworthy about a person when you first met, met them. Well, over time, it just ceases to make your heart flutter anymore, Right? And that's the danger of familiarity. Familiarity can numb you to reality. Uh, That's a danger in friendships. It's a danger in marriages. And I'll tell you, it's a danger when it comes to our relationships with Jesus too. Now, this passage that we are looking at tonight in Luke's gospel is case in point for the danger of familiarity. This passage is a really familiar one to many of us because it's this passage that gets wheeled out every Christmas for us to digest out of sheer obligation. And the scene that's described in these verses is so familiar to most of us. We can just, you can picture it in your mind's eye. They're probably images that you first saw as a child and you've been thinking about every year of your life since. You can picture the baby in the manger with the straw underneath him. You can picture the the shepherds standing around holding their staves. You can picture the choir of angels in the sky. You've heard this story so many times before, whether you are a Christian, a believer who reads the Bible, or whether you're somebody who just pays attention to the world that we live in. And so if you're anything like me tonight, then it can be very easy as we read this passage to lack a sense of awe or a sense of wonder about these things because we are familiar with this Jesus familiar with the baby Jesus in the manger. And so the truth is that often we are just unimpressed, unmoved by this story. Now, we're approaching Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20 today, free from any sort of Christmas obligation. Contrary to Nick, I don't think we're two months late or ten months early. I think we're right on time for this passage. And so I think we've got the opportunity tonight to look at Jesus with fresh eyes. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not going to try and say anything to you tonight that's novel, that you haven't heard before. But my hope is that tonight, as we digest this passage together, that God is going to help us to see past our familiarity so that we're struck again with that sense of awe and wonder that we should be struck with as we come face to face with this promised child. 
Because Luke, as he wrote this account, he wrote this to help us to see two remarkable truths about Jesus, two character traits, if you like. As we read these verses, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the ruler of the world. And secondly, that Jesus is the saviour of the world. He wants us to see these two remarkable character traits. And then he wants to help us to see that we should respond to Jesus with joyful belief, with belief and praise. And so I'm going to pray for us before we get too stuck into this text that God would help us because I think we really need God's help tonight. So let's pray. Lord God, please, would you help us and be with us tonight by your Holy Spirit so that these words don't fall on deaf ears. God, we don't want to be people who are confronted with the Lord Jesus and who ignore him, who are unimpressed by him, who are uninspired by him. And so please, Lord, open our blind eyes, unstop our deaf ears, loosen our stiff necks so that we would see Jesus clearly and afresh and help us to respond to him in joyful praise. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, let's have a look together in the passage, first of all, verses 1 to 7, where Luke shows us that Jesus is the ruler of the world. And the question that I want you to be thinking about as we work through these verses, the question to kind of look at them through is why has Luke written his account the way that he's written it here? Why has he structured it the way that he has? That's the question I want you to think about. What is Luke up to in these verses? Okay, so let's have a look. Verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. So they begin, just cast your eye over that, they begin with the focus on this guy called Caesar Augustus. And this guy, Caesar Augustus, he's working on the world stage. He's issuing decrees to the whole Roman Empire. And then glance down to verses 4 and 5. Uh, Luke kind of narrows down his focus onto this guy, Joseph, and his journey to the small town of Bethlehem. And then as he goes on, verses 6 and 7, the focus becomes even narrower still as we come to the baby in the manger. Can you see what Luke is starting to do here? He's focusing progressively in a more narrow way from the world stage to a small provincial town to a feeding trough, from an emperor to a carpenter to a baby. I don't know whether you ever played with a magnifying glass when you were young. It's something that I used to do when summer would roll around in England and we would get our 2.5 hours of sunshine each year. You'd go outside with a magnifying glass and a sheet of dark paper and you would hold the magnifying glass over the paper. And what would normally happen is that, first of all, it would kind of be cast into like a big dispersed pool of light. And so you would have to kind of wiggle the magnifying glass, lift it up and down until you would eventually focus all of the sun's rays down to one kind of tiny pinprick of a point. And if you held it there long enough, then the paper would catch fire. It would start to burn. Have you ever done that? Did you ever play that game as a kid? And if you were especially malicious when you were playing that game, then you could do that to a poor unsuspecting ant that was pinned down by a sheet of glad wrap. Now, I don't know anything about that. You know, that's, again, that's something Joel shared with me. I didn't ever do it. But Luke, as he writes this account, he's doing that sort of an activity. Joel, uh, Luke, Luke rather, is starting on a big stage and then he's zeroing in to almost kind of a, a pinprick, which is unbelievably powerful. Let's digest this a little bit more closely. Have a look, first of all, in verses 1 to 3, where we see this international stage. 
Caesar Augustus. He issues a decree that a, a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in the known world at that time. That's a statue of Caesar from the Vatican Museums. Uh, Caesar, uh, Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And you can read in ancient sources that Augustus liked to be referred to as the son of God. That coin that there's a picture of there, the inscription of it reads, Augustus, son of the divine. And now after Augustus died, he was actually worshipped as a god. And so that temple there is a picture of the temple to Augustus, which was one of many all across the Roman Empire. And you can read uh, inscriptions at those kind of temples that talk about Augustus as the saviour of the world. Augustus was the kind of guy who claimed absolute allegiance from his subjects and his citizens. And so when he asked for a census, you did as you were asked. So verse 3, everyone goes to their own town to register for this census. But then look how it narrows. Verse 4, Joseph, under orders, heads from Nazareth, his place of residence, to his ancestral home in Bethlehem. And and look closely at the details that Luke includes there. He describes it, verse 4, as the town of David. Joseph goes there because he belongs to the house and the line of of David. Are you starting to see what Luke is doing? He's placing two competing powers side by side. Uh, the imperial might of Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the whole known world, and then this figure from Israel's history, King David, the greatest leader that they had ever known. And Luke is, is gently starting to ask the question, well, who's in charge here? But the focus narrows again, verse 6 to 7. The baby is born. And it's a very kind of understated description, isn't it? You're spared all the kind of gruesome details that we tend to delight in these days. It ignores the modern obsession with the weight of the baby. We don't know whether this was really six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus that Ricky Bobby prayed to. Now, if you don't get that reference, don't worry. This is, it's, it's just a plain, quick description, isn't it? Baby was born. But do you notice... The important detail, how this baby is described in verse 7. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, it would be easy to miss that detail as we rushed through this passage in our Christmas haste. But this is a significant detail for us to digest. Because you see, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish law, it was the firstborn son that was the heir of all of the family privileges. You see what Luke's doing? This tiny baby in a feeding trough, probably in a relative's home rather than in some nondescript inn, this tiny baby is David's heir. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, you might remember the promise of chapter 1, verse 32. Uh, If you don't remember, just cast your eyes back if you've got a Bible in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 32, it's where the angel is speaking to Mary, Jesus' mum, And he promises Mary a son who will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And it says that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Can you see the remarkable thing that Luke is describing? The enormous power of imperial Rome 
is subject to God, who uses it to bring his king into the world. Isn't that a remarkably subversive thing that God does? Proud, powerful, pompous Caesar Augustus, he flexes his muscle within his empire, and ironically, through it, God's king begins his reign from a manger. I think it's a little bit like a hydroelectric dam. Uh, Now, if that comparison is not immediately apparent to you, let me try and explain it for you. I don't know if you've ever been to a hydroelectric dam. I've been to a couple in my time. They are really impressive structures when you walk right up to them. There is just this huge quantity of water, this, this untold power that is being propped up by a pretty massive concrete wall. And yet, where is the actual power in the hydroelectric dam? Where, where does the power lie? Well, it lies with the man or the woman who sits inside a room deep inside the dam who flicks a switch or pulls a lever or types in a code to release the water in order to do its work. You see, appearances can be deceptive. The, the power, the ultimate power in a hydroelectric dam lies with the person who flicks the switch. And that is kind of what Luke is saying. That's what Luke is saying to his reader, Theophilus. It's what he's saying to us tonight. Power and where it lies is deceptive. It may have appeared to Israel in the first century that power lay with Caesar Augustus and his claim to be the son of God and to be the savior of the world. And actually, Luke says, nothing could be further from the truth. Caesar Augustus is just a pawn in the hands of the living God who uses his power to bring about the birth of his king. Friends, we live in a world where there are so many competing powers and authorities that demand our allegiance. And I think it's very easy for us to locate kind of ultimate authority in those powers. Now, many of the the authorities, the powers that we subject ourselves to, they are legitimate authorities that it's right that we give them our allegiance. But our allegiance to earthly authorities, it must never be absolute. Uh, We are constantly forced to ask this question as followers of Jesus, Who's really in charge here? You you know, as you look around at the international political stage, you might be tempted to think that the countries who have the biggest bombs and the countries with the, the most booming economies, that they're the ones who really have the power on the world stage. You might be tempted to think, as you look around at a a local level, that it's the political parties who have the most elected officials who really have the power. But we have to ask the question, who's in charge? Some of you might be employed uh, by bosses who breathe down your neck and who are constantly asking you to give more and more hours. And what they're actually asking you for is a little piece of your soul. Well, who's in charge? Maybe within your family, it's really easy to be intimidated by an overbearing spouse or parent who far from living for your good, demands that you live for theirs. Who's in charge? Luke assures us that God is in charge. He assures us in ways that will make us smile and laugh with delight if we have the eyes to see them. Do you remember Mary's song back in chapter 1? She sings about how God has brought down 
rulers from their thrones. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's sent the rich away hungry. Now, why is it that we would struggle to believe that and in so doing be intimidated by the powers and authorities which surround us? Well, maybe it's because we haven't actually grasped just how great a ruler Jesus is. Jesus is not just the ruler of a city. He's not just the ruler of a state. He's not even just the ruler of the world. Jesus is the ruler of the whole of reality. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, Luke says, whose rule and reign will never end. Now, if that is really true, and if you and I belong to him, then why would we fear any lesser authority? Why turn the authorities of this world in, whether great or small, essentially into idols who we'd bow down to and worship. If it's true, friends, that Jesus is the ruler of all of reality, and if you or I have not subjected ourselves to him, then why waste any time or energy subjecting yourself to any lesser authority? Jesus is the greatest ruler. That's Luke's message here. Jesus is the ruler of everything. And this child that appears in a feeding trough, he subjects even Caesar Augustus to his rule. So if we struggle to believe it, if we find ourselves intimidated by the other earthly authorities and rulers around us, then I want to invite you this evening to dwell on the majesty and the authority of Jesus. Because through this baby, God humbles earthly powers That's the the first awe-inspiring truth that Luke wants us to see in these verses. The second truth that he wants us to see is in verse 8 to 14, where he shows us that Jesus is the saviour of the world. Jesus is the ruler of the world, and Jesus is the saviour of the world. And Luke shows us this in ways that continue to turn our expectations on their heads. Let's have a look again at verse 8. It mentions that the shepherds are out in their field at night. It's an interesting little detail. Why do you think Luke has included the fact that it's at night time that these shepherds are out in their fields? Well, I think that Luke is mentioning that quite deliberately because he's trying to set up an echo. He's trying to ring a bell in your mind to something that you heard right at the end of chapter 1. Do you remember last week we looked at Zechariah's song? Uh, If you can't remember, the verses are going to come up on the screen. The end of Zechariah's song at the end of chapter 1. Remember, Zechariah is John the Baptist's dad, and he's singing about what this child is going to do. And he says that John the Baptist will give God's people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And he says, "What, what will that be like? Well, he says, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. You see, Luke is a master storyteller and he's setting up an echo. He wants us to remember those people living in darkness. And so what happens to the shepherds? Verse 9, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. And they were terrified. Now, it doesn't get much brighter than the glory of the Lord. Luke, you see, he's deliberately crafting his story to tell us that God 
is keeping his promises. The Saviour has come, just as Zechariah foresaw, to deliver people and to forgive their sins. Maybe it'll help if you can picture for me one of those long, dark, cold winters right up in the top of the northern hemisphere within the arctic circle you know the kinds of winters they get in like northern parts of norway and russia and greenland those winters where it remains dark and perpetual night for weeks or months at a time you know those kind of winters during those winters life kind of comes to a standstill life is suppressed in those winters animals go into hibernation plants stop growing people stay indoors for weeks at a time. I want you to picture one of those winters and then imagine yourself in that winter. And imagine the first day that the sun rises just over the horizon and you see its rays for the first time in weeks. Imagine the joy. Imagine the excitement that you would feel at the first sight of the sun. Imagine the sun's rays hitting your face and warming you for the first time in weeks. At that moment, you would know, wouldn't you, that the darkness is coming to an end. The darkness will not go on forever. And in a sense, that is exactly what is happening to these shepherds in Luke 2. As you hear that echo of Zechariah's song that one day the sun will rise and it will disperse the darkness, well, we've got these men here at night with the glory of the Lord, the manifestation of who God is appearing to them and dispersing their darkness. That is what the arrival of this child will accomplish, the dispersal of darkness. And God appears to them in a way that subverts our expectations yet again. The glory of the Lord, it doesn't appear to Caesar Augustus. It doesn't appear to the high priests. No, it appears to these shepherds, the sort of people that you probably wouldn't want to invite to a polite dinner party. The glory of the Lord, it doesn't appear in the capital of the Roman Empire. It doesn't even appear in the temple, the place where it had always appeared in the past. No, it appears in a field outside of a provincial town. Can you see what Luke is doing here? The boundaries, whether they are religious or ethnic, they are starting to stretch and one day they will burst. It's a remarkable picture, the glory of the Lord appearing in a field to shepherds. This is hard to get your head around. It's difficult for us to grasp. The closest thing that I could come to in trying to equate this with something is for you to imagine Queen Elizabeth. You know, Queen Elizabeth in England, she's, she's my monarch, she's your monarch too, so get used to it. Imagine Queen Elizabeth in her most regal, with all of her splendor, all of her glory. She's wearing her most elaborate robe. She's wearing that beautiful crown with all the diamonds and rubies on it. She's, wearing, she's holding her scepter. She's got an entourage of hundreds around her. She's being pulled along in one of those like pure gold chariots that looks like it belongs in a fairy tale. You know the scene? Imagine the queen showing up at Woolies at Unendera. That is the kind of comparison. It would be astonishing. It would be utterly breathtaking to see that glory in that place. Nothing against Woolies at Unendera. But that picture, that is just a fraction. It is a fraction of how dramatic this picture is in Luke chapter 2. The glory of the Lord appearing to the shepherds in a field. 
Now, I want you to hold that picture in mind and let's have a look again at the words of the angels in verses 10 and 11 because now as we read them, they don't come as such a shock. The angels say, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Does he go on to say? Of course, this, this child is a saviour, verse 11. Of course, this child is the Messiah, the, the long-promised king that God would send. Of course, this child is the Lord, God himself. Who else could cause the glory of the Lord to appear in a field? This child is the appearing of God to save and forgive his people. He is the fulfilment of God's promises to Israel down through the years. And nothing less than the sound of the angelic choir will do as a soundtrack for this saviour. So keep looking at these angels' words in verse 14. So some of the most familiar words in all of the Bible. And I want you to notice here that the kind of the twin directions of the angels' words when they commentate on this event. What do they say? Glory to God in the highest. They begin with this kind of vertical dimension to this event, right? That's what the coming of Jesus demands. It demands that God be praised and glorified. That is why back in chapter 1 in Mary's song, she begins by saying, my soul glorifies the Lord. It's why Zechariah began his song in chapter 1 by saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. The coming of Jesus into the world as the saviour of the world, you see, it is radically God-centred. It's all about God. Now, as we think about the arrival of this saviour, Jesus, it's appropriate that we celebrate and we feel joyful about all the things that Jesus gives to us. The forgiveness of our sins, clean consciences, adoption as sons and daughters of God. It's appropriate that we celebrate those things, all of those blessings that we enjoy. But please notice that the focus of Jesus' arrival, the focus, first of all, is on God himself. That's the prime agenda of Jesus' arrival. It is to display God to the world through the salvation of men and women. And so let me just urge you not to forget that as you are enjoying the benefits of belonging to Jesus. Don't forget that it's all about God. But notice that there's this kind of horizontal dimension to the angels' words too. They say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. You see, because of the favour or the, the grace of God resting on humanity through this child, peace will result. Peace. And we know from the rest of the Bible that the peace that's being talked about here is not just about kind of the end of warfare, the end of struggle. It is about that, but it's about much more than that too. The sort of peace that this is promised about is about the, the restoration of balance. It's about the restoration of harmony and justice to the whole of the created order. It's about returning all of creation to the way it was designed to function in the beginning. It's what the Bible will call shalom, true peace. Now, at the time that the angels were announcing this message to the shepherds, uh, the Roman world at the time was experiencing something called the Pax Romana. If you're a historian, you know what that is. That's uh, the peace of Rome. It was a period of roughly 200 years in Rome's history that was marked by relative stability between nations in the Roman Empire. Uh, war ceased, that sort of thing. And there were various privileges for Roman citizens at the time because of the Pax Romana. 
But whilst that peace led to a decrease in warfare and a few other good things, it never even came close to bringing about total peace, the fulfilment of peace, that complete restoration of harmony and balance and order within the world at every level, political, social, psychological, spiritual. Pax Romana couldn't come close. But the promise in Luke 2 is that through the coming of this child, deliverance and salvation will be brought as a dislocated world is brought back into harmony because of the favour of God. Friends, do you see the breadth of God's agenda in Jesus? Jesus is the saviour, the, the deliverer of the whole world. He is the one whose arrival disperses darkness through the forgiveness of sins and he brings about the peace of God in order that God might be glorified. Let me ask you this evening, how familiar is this Jesus looking to you? Are you unimpressed? Are you unmoved by this Jesus? As we finish up the passage, let me show you what Luke tries to help us see in these final verses. Luke wants us to see how the birth of Jesus demands a response. And so what Luke does is he records the responses of a whole bunch of people in the chapter. So let's have a look at what he says. Verse 17, Luke records that the shepherds go and see Jesus, and then they start to spread the word about him. Uh, Verse 20, they return to their jobs, glorifying and praising God. Uh, Verse 18, those who hear the words of the shepherds are amazed. Verse 19, Mary treasures up all these things and ponders them in her heart. Uh, Luke is trying to show us that this event is of such a magnitude, such an order, that it demands a response. And, And the correct response the natural response even is joyful belief in jesus is that your response to the birth of jesus joyful belief i think a number of things get in the way of us having that response to jesus undoubtedly being overly familiar with jesus slipping into apathy towards Jesus. That's one of the big obstacles. But I reckon often there's something deeper going on that stops us from responding with joyful belief. Maybe you're somebody here tonight who doesn't yet see your need for forgiveness. You know, far from recognising that you live in darkness, well, as you look at your future, you think, man, the future looks bright. Well, if that's you this evening, then this Jesus who we meet will make no sense to you. This idea of him coming as a saviour, as a deliverer, as one who forgives sin, well, it doesn't add up. And so if that's you, then let me invite you to look at Jesus a little more closely. That is the course of action which you need because many of us here this evening, we've discovered that when we encounter Jesus... When we meet him and see what an amazing person he is through these gospel accounts, then our opinion of ourselves is transformed. It can't help but be transformed. Because we come to see that when we compare ourselves to Jesus, we fall so far short of this perfect standard that God demands and that he deserves. And so we realize that the main thing that we have to come to Jesus for is for forgiveness. 
Sometimes our perceived lack of need is what stops us from joyfully believing in him. Or maybe you're a person here tonight who is far from that. You are just weighed down by a sense of guilt and sin. You are the complete opposite of that first person I spoke about. You think that your sins are far too great for God to ever forgive them. You think you are the worst of sinners. If that's you, then let me encourage you, friend, stop looking at your sin and start looking at Jesus. God knows the horror of your sin and of my sin. He knows it far better than we know it ourselves. And yet he still sends his son as a deliverer to forgive you. The question is, who, who knows best, you or God, as to whether you can be forgiven? Who knows that, the answer to that question best? You see, God says that Jesus came to deliver people, all people, as we put our trust in him. And so no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. The birth of Jesus is good news, which brings joy for all people, even you. So don't let your sin keep you from joyful belief in Jesus. But finally, maybe, maybe you're not able to respond in joyful belief to Jesus because you just don't see the promised peace that peace that's spoken of here, this balance and harmony and restoration, which is promised with the coming of this child. You know, you look around at the world and the people in it and you think, man, this place seems about just as messed up, if not more than it was 2,000 years ago. And so what difference has Jesus made? You can't see any peace around us as far as we can see. Well, if that's you, then let me encourage you to look around you in this room. There are dozens, there's over a hundred of us here tonight and there are millions around the world who will tell you that their lives have been transformed through Jesus. They as individuals and we as a group of people have already been brought back into harmony, into relationship with God as he's graciously forgiven our sins and given us new life. And as God has done that to us, that is being worked out in our relationships with one another. And don't we look forward to that, that day when Jesus will return, not as a, a baby, but as one who has been exalted to the right hand of God, as, as the final ruler of the universe who will return in glory and power and might to bring about a new heavens and a new earth where there will be a final peace. And anything that threatens to shatter that peace will finally be driven from God's presence. Friends, don't be blind to the real peace Jesus brings and so miss out on trusting in him joyfully. And so whether you don't see your need for forgiveness, whether you are weighed down by a sense of sin and guilt, whether you can't see the promised peace, the answer is the same for all of us. It's to look to Jesus. That is why Luke is focusing our attention on Jesus in these early chapters. Jesus is the one who exposes our need for forgiveness. He is the one who brings forgiveness when we are burdened by sin and guilt. And he is the one who ultimately will bring peace to the whole universe. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, earth, peace to those on whom God's favour rests. Let's pray.